0: welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the beaches of Normandy to the heart of Germany, the Sherwood Rangers were in the thick of the action throughout the Allied assault on Western Europe. In his new book, Brothers in Arms, The military historian, author and broadcaster James Holland follows the story of this British tank regiment in the final months of the war against Nazi Germany. He reveals the tremendous perils they faced and the courage that enabled the men to keep fighting. BBC History magazine editor Rob Athar spoke to James to find out more.
2: First off, why have you chosen to write about the Sherwood Rangers? Were they a typical tank regiment or was there something extraordinary about them?
3: Um, I suppose, in one way, they were a typical tank regiment of an independent armoured brigade. And I think it's important to stress that that armoured units within an armoured division and armoured units within an independent armoured brigade were different. It was part of the kind of evolving tactics uh, of the British army in the Second World War, and particularly in, in the Mediterranean and European theatres. And the idea behind an independent armoured brigade was that they would be working with the infantry divisions and the whole plan was that the infantry would do the grinding attack they would break down the enemy defences breach a big hole through which the armoured divisions would then exploit so the kind of the armoured divisions were seen as a sort of corps de chasse i suppose a kind of sort of you know a, a a quicker more mobile rapid force that would exploit any kind of great big breach in the line whereas the independent armored brigades were there to operate hand in glove with the infantry so sort of slow and originally the idea was that they would have Churchill tanks which were not very fast but incredibly well armored and you know could climb up anything and all that kind of stuff but there just weren't enough of them so the most of the independent armored brigades ended up being equipped with American Shermans which is what the Sherwood Rangers had and the Sherwood Rangers because the nature of warfare in Northwest Europe particularly didn't pan out quite as people anticipated. You know, because when they were planning Normandy, when they were planning the D-Day invasion and planning the Northwest European campaign, they were they had only experience on which to draw. So, you know, they're looking at what happened in North Africa, what happened in Sicily, what's happened in, in Italy up to that point. And what tended to happen is that the Germans would put up a big, big fight, then they would retreat in stages. And They were expecting that to be the same. But as we know, in Normandy, the Germans held on to their kind of forward positions a lot longer than had been anticipated. And then there was a great big surge forward after the Normandy campaign. Um, But then it halted again. And then it basically became a sort of grinding battle until really kind of very end of March 1945, which meant that the independent armoured brigades were just in the firing line the whole time. So the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry has 18 battle honours just between D-Day and V-Day, and that's a heck of a lot. And actually, overall in the war, because they've got a whole load in in North Africa as well, in the Middle East, um, they end up being the single unit with more battle honours than any other. So that does make them exceptional. And the fact that they were a yeomanry regiment, which is effectively part of the territorial army, so in, in other words, sort of, in peacetime part-time soldiers just sort of turning up at weekends and you know the odd summer camp and so on i kind of think that makes them all the more extraordinary but my connection to them was an entirely personal one because i first went to normandy in 2004 for the 60th anniversary of normandy and d-day and i was there with a bunch of friends and one of that our group was actually someone that i hadn't met before called david Christofferson. and um we had an extraordinary um, first day where we were down on Gold Beach, and we were standing between a ca- uh, next to a casement at La Hamel, and David was telling me about how his father had landed on D Day with the Sherwood Rangers on on Gold Beach and how there'd been this casement that had held them all up and and so on. And we got chatting, and then we were staying south of Bayeux in a place called Adroy. And he said, You know what? I think my 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 dad was pretty close to here. Um, they had a big fight at a place called Point 103, all around there and Tilly Saysoul and Saint Pierre. Um, and I'm I'm pretty sure this is, is pretty close. And he got out his dad's journals. He had, his father had incredible journals. And I said, Well, let, let's you and I, kind of while everyone else is sort of, you know, having a bit of downtime, let's you and I just wander up the road and have a look at it. So we walked up the road, it was only about a mile away to point 103. And we looked at his his father's maps and we looked at his father's journals and stuff. And there was this lane running across this sort of ridgeline, this tree lined with sort of beaches. And you could sort of half close your eyes and you could absolutely imagine the Sherman tanks and vehicles and, you know, half tracks and 1,500 weights and so on, all sort of lined up on this sort of slightly sunken track, looking down towards the Searle Valley and Tilly, the village of Tilly and Saint-Pierre. And it was an incredibly atmospheric moment but it was a really poignant moment and I was just completely hooked on the Sherwood Rangers from that moment and at the time I was working on a book about the North Africa campaign and David said well you know my dad was in North Africa and he fought at Alamein and Alam Halfa and all the way through to the end of the war in in um and in Fideville in, you know, in May 1943. And he said, you know, I've got his diaries, you know, you're very welcome to use them. I went, oh, yes, please. And so I wrote about Stanley Christopherson in Together We Stand, which was a book that eventually came about in North Africa. Um, And then later on, um, I had the opportunity to edit the whole of um, Stanley Christopherson's diaries and publish it in a book. And David and I did a lot of research together for that. And we went beetling around talking to former Sherwood Rangers yeomanry, um, veterans who were still alive and had a fantastic time doing that so i, I it, it's for a combination of reasons that i i chose the Sherwood rangers
2: what do you see as the peculiar challenges of serving in a tank regiment as opposed to being say in the infantry
3: well i think i think both infantry and tanks is is absolutely brutal and i think we have this sort of vague sort of impression that because of the huge slaughter on the eastern front and stuff you know if, if, if you were in the british army or the american army or canadian or whatever you didn't have it quite as tough and i don't think that's really true i think it it depends on what part of the army you were in and the western allies operated a system whereby you know they have an incredibly long tail and massive support and huge amount of mechanization and technology and the idea behind that was to limit the number of people at the coalface of war to the absolute bare minimum Um, this was the kind of steel, not flesh strategy. And broadly speaking, it was incredibly successful. But the bottom line was you still needed armour and you still needed infantry, and they were the spearhead. They're the tip of the spear. So if you're unfortunate enough in the Second World War, in the British Army, for example, to be in the infantry or the armour, your chances of getting through unscathed statistically are pretty much zip. You, you know, certainly in armour, if you were the Sherwood Rangers, you, ha- you had a zero chance of getting through unscathed statistically. Now, obviously, there were some people who got through unscathed, but they were incredibly lucky. There wasn't a single tank crew in the Sherwood Rangers that didn't get hit at some point in the North European campaign. I mean, that's an incredible statistic. Uh, And and what that means is if you're a a member of a tank crew, you just know that somewhere around the corner, there's a shell or a mortar or something with your name on it. And whether you get out of your tank and survive unscathed, or whether you get slightly wounded, or whether you get severely wounded, or whether you get killed or incinerated, is really entirely a matter of chance. Now, there's certain things you can do to kind of obviously limit the risk but not a lot and and it's the same with infantry you know the infantry are very exposed but they have more opportunity to to escape to kind of hit the deck get out of the firing line quicker but obviously you know they haven't got any armor in front of them whereas tanks have got armor but you're very obvious and there's a lot of shells that can still penetrate that armour. And trying to get out of a tank is incredibly difficult, whether it's a, an American-built Sherman, a British Cromwell or Churchill, or a Jagdpanther or a Tiger. You know, these things are horrific. And the danger is just enormous. I mean, it, it's there's just no way of getting around that. And one of the things that I really wanted to bring out was just the sort of relentlessness of the action. You know, we tend to think of D-Day and Normandy and perhaps... Market Garden, and perhaps if we've kind of sort of watched Band of Brothers, we know a little bit about the Battle of the Bulge or something like that. But the rest of the Northwest European Europe campaign is just a sort of, it's just a series of dates and, you know, it was a slog and then suddenly it was April and then it was May and it was all over. And no one knows the details of it and no one really appreciates, I think, just how brutal it was for infantry, but also particularly armour and particularly these independent armour brigades. I mean, you know, the Sherwood Rangers, when they saw the guards armoured, Coming through, who were part of an armored division, you know, they go, "Oh, careful! You know, watch the paint," you know, all these kind of comments, because basically they've been sort of there was this sort of perception that they've been kind of sat back, uh, which is possibly a bit unfair, but but there is a sort of element of truth to it. There's no question that the independent armored brigades, and particularly something like the 8th Armored Brigade, which the Sherwood Rangers were attached to, you know, those three armored regiments within that brigade were just in the firing line the whole time uh, and it's fascinating when you look at the kind of you know a chronology of it and you look how much time was in within the firing line at some point and how much they were out of the line it's well over 50 percent of their time was in the firing line
2: and how did these men cope with that i mean how did they survive mentally under constant fire and, and so much danger
3: yeah that's one of the questions that i've really really struggled to to come to terms with actually because I just I just don't know is 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 the long and short of it. I suppose it's a well no, that's not entirely true. I sort of know. A because you have to and there's that that bond of camaraderie which which binds people and there is that kind of sort of terrible fear of letting people down. And sometimes the fear of letting people down is worse than the fear of what might happen if you keep going forward. Start off with this sort of ignorance. Um and and you're quite unlucky if you get hit in your first First engagement. I mean, it, it did happen, and it happened quite a lot. But but even so, chances are you're going to be you'll survive your first thing, you know. And also, there's lots of people get hit, and do you manage to escape, unscathed? And a lot of people get hit, and it's a minor, you know, it's a snick or it's a kind of light wound or whatever, and they're back in the firing line within a, in a few months. So I think there's that. I think also the atmosphere in the in the regiment was a really, really strong one. And, and Stanley Christopherson, David's father, who I've already mentioned, who took over command of the regiment on the 11th of June 1944, so just a few days after D-Day, he he introduced a kind of very different approach of leadership. So he his one was one of very open, very friendly, very cheery, could absolutely come down like a ton of bricks if he really needed to but he really had to because people had so much respect for him for his own personal courage and for his ability to keep going to keep smiling to keep being chipper all the time and i think that had an incredible knock-on effect and one thing i would say whether it's a whether it's a sporting team or whether it's an army or whether it's a division you know or a brigade or whatever i think i think it really filters down from the top i've really come to the conclusion that leadership really does kind of suffuse what is beneath it. And I think it's incredibly important that the leadership is correct. And there's nothing worse than a poor leader of, uh, in a, in, uh, of, of men in the Second World War. You know, it, it just, you know, morale just goes through the floor if you're not careful. And Maintaining morale and maintaining that kind of strong leadership is just so important. Uh, and I think Stanley Christopherson just had an innate ability to, to be able to kind of to, to lead men. And and to have that respect, I remember when David Christopherson and I were going around talking to veterans. Every single one just said, "Stanley Christopherson was the most incredible commander. He was the most incredible person I ever met. I, I just don't know how he did it." John Semkin, who was a squadron commander, um, he just kept saying to us, "I don't know how Stanley did it. I don't know how he kept going, but somehow he did." Uh, and I think that was a really important factor. But you know, there's no question that lots of people were starting to lose their nerve. And the other thing I think that there was the setup within the Sherwood Rangers was you had Stanley Christopherson, then you had Dr. Charles Hilda Young. He was always known as Hilda for some reason. Um, And and he was the MO, the, the medical officer. And then there was the Padre, Leslie Skinner. And I think the three of them provided what we would now call pastoral care and very good pastoral care. So they kept an eye on people. You know, someone who'd been in it in North Africa and then done D-Day in Normandy and was just looking a bit, you know, a bit tired. You know, they'd have regular meetings with the squadron commanders and troop commanders. They'd go, you know, how is everyone? You know, how's Ernie in kind of, you know, I don't know, in two troop or whatever, in A squadron. Well, you know, I'm a bit worried about him. And they'd whisk him out and put him into the echelons. And the echelons were kind of, you know, three-fifths of the regiment, and they're the people who are supplying, doing all the supplies. And so they're beetling around in trucks. So there's still danger, but it's nothing like the danger of being in the sabre squadrons, the three fighting squadrons and the recce troop. So they'd do that, and they'd also do that with officers as well. So suddenly, you know, there was a young, might be a young troop commander who's just been in the line, you know, three months or something, and he's just starting to, nerves are starting to fray, and they'd whisk him out and put him into regimental headquarters, and he might do a stint as intelligence officer, or they might move him to a, an officer role in the echelons or, or whatever, or they might send him home on a course for a couple of weeks. You know, they were very, very good at, at, at getting people before it got too late. And it's very interesting reading those letters, you know, and reading diaries and memoirs that were written pretty much at the time. You know, it's absolutely clear that the the grinding fear, you know, you you come out of the line and you've got that incredible kind of release of fear and adrenaline that, oh, thank God, you know, we're safe for a few days, you know. And then suddenly it's like, okay, we've got to get going again. We've got to move back into the line. And, and yeah, I, I think it's just a combination of things, to be honest, Rob. But 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 how they did it, I, I you know, I'm in awe of what they went through.
2: Were there any battles or campaigns where the Sherwood Rangers really distinguished themselves or played a really crucial part in the Allied success?
3: Yeah, I think they were. I think they were very very good in those opening stages uh, of the Normandy campaign, uh, and having to learn on the hoof because, of course, the tactics were very different. To what they were in North Africa, those wide open spaces. Suddenly, it's very close country. You've got narrow, small fields, hedge lined villages surrounded by orchards. It's all very close. Uh, visibility is, you know, mile, two miles. You know, max. Quite often, only a few hundred yards. And of course, they haven't really trained for that because in in England before D-Day, you know, suddenly you've got millions of men. You've got millions of stores. You've got lots of sort of moving parts. So it just there just isn't the space in which to do an awful lot of all arms training in you know, the best place would be Devon or something, but the Americans are there, not the British or, you know, so, so how do you do that? You know, there's only so many times you can sort of cycle people up to Salisbury Plain or Lulworth or something, you know, so incredibly difficult to do that training. So there's no choice but to just learn on the hoof. And so they, they, they adapt to that incredibly quickly And there is a moment on the 26th of June where they're attacking the Roray Ridge, which is just to the south of a village called Fontenay and near the Seoul Valley, where the Sherwood Rangers knock out 13 German tanks for no loss of their own. Um, And and there is one particular tank commanded by Sergeant George Dring that knocks out two Tigers, one Panther, and two Panzer Mark IVs. And the, the, the Tigers and the Panther, they are, you know, tank for tank, supposed to be better, you know, they're better armour, they've got a higher velocity gun, more powerful gun, you know, a a 75 millimetre main gun Sherman tank should not be knocking out two Tigers and a Panther just like that, but he does that, and that's that's superior skill, superior tactics, better reading of the land, and shows what they can do, but just consistently, there were, were, you know, there's a battle for Giel, for example, which was a very brutal encounter for the Sherwood Rangers, but you know, they prevailed. And this was part of clearing the Albert Canal in preparation for Operation Market Garden. So this was sort of second week of September 1944. And again, that was a really brutal fight against some pretty stiff opposition, where again, they prevailed. And again, at the Battle of Geilenkirken, on the west wall of the Seafried Line in November 1944, you know, they were they were put together with the 84th Infantry Division, which was an American division new to combat. The 84th Rail Splitters had only arrived in, in Europe in october and suddenly they were thrust into battle the conditions were absolutely appalling i mean you know just mud 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 everywhere rain cold utterly miserable working against that firepower and mechanization superiority that the allies have and yet again they managed to kind of nurture the the um, 84th infantry division achieve most of their objectives you know, in in really impossible conditions. And I think they did better than was probably expected, than the conditions kind of predicted. Uh, but just consistently, you know, they just got wise. There's all sorts of little sort of scraps and incidents where the kind of perseverance and, I don't know, the, the kind of sort of experience of the Sherwood Rangers really kind of came to the fore.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
3: He turned this corner of this village and at exactly the same time coming in the opposite direction was a tiger tank. So suddenly they they faced each other. There was absolutely no way that the tiger tank should have come off
1: second best to that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search In these
2: later battles, you've got autumn turning into winter. What did the cold weather mean for serving in a tank crew?
3: Yeah, it's just it's a it's a sort of different set of miseries because, of course, in high summer you've got incredibly long days where it's light because you know while it's light you tend to fight when it's dark you don't. So obviously the fighting day is shorter in the winter, but it's just you know tanks. Despite all the kind of modernization and technology and mechanisation of the Second World War, and particularly the latter part of the Second World War, you know, there was a reason why people tended to fight in the traditional summer campaigning season. And that's because the ground was harder, the days were longer, and it was kind of easier. And that still stood in the Second World War. And I think the problem you've got is you've got, you know, yes, you've got tanks with tracks and stuff, but there's only so much mud they can go through, you know. And and it's just the conditions of sort of operate, you know, you're basically living in a tank. So, yes, okay, you might be lucky enough to get some billets, but the billets aren't going to have kind of heating or, you know, they're going to be dank and dark and a kind of sort of knocked out house or cellar or something. And it's freezing cold. I mean... The winters during the Second World War were notoriously awful. You know, freezing freezing cold, lots of snow, lots of rain, and traditionally from 1939 right through to 1944 to 45. Winters took the following pattern: dramatic rainfall in late September, increasing rainfall in November, continuing to rain in November, uh, and 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 then the big freeze in December um, and January and into February, followed by more rain. You know, and that happened across Europe. So any photographs of kind of Europe in, in January, February 1943, 44, 45, it all looks the same. It's completely monochrome and white. You know, and that goes for Italy as well as, you know, which you sort of associate with kind of, you know, lemons and palm trees and sort of twinkly Mediterranean sea. Not a bit of it. It was utterly miserable. And these poor sods who were having to kind of fight through this, it was just absolutely brutal. We all know what it's like when, when you know, I don't know, your boiler packs up and... And it's cold, and it's the middle of winter, and and you know there's only so many jumpers you can put on, and your hands are but you know it, it's miserable when your feet are cold and when your hands are cold, and yet you've got to operate a tank, and you've got to go into battle in these conditions, and it's incredibly dark, and when it's dark, you know you can't have a fire because the enemy might see you and all the rest of it. So it's just incredibly tough physically, and that has. A massive knock-on effect mentally as well. It's just—it's just the the relentlessness of it. It's—it's it's the grind, and all the time, you're taking casualties. You know, a crew gets knocked out, or you know, Charlie buys it, or Johnny, or whatever your best mate, and somehow you've got to keep going. I—I I just, you know, it's—it's it's been tough here, in, hasn't it? In the last sort of eighteen months with COVID and stuff, and you know, and and I don't want to sort of belittle belittle anyone's misery. But, you know, it, it it was very interesting writing this book during kind of lockdowns and during the time of COVID because it was good to be reminded that however kind of tough the pandemic has been, you know, being a tank crew in 1944-45 was really, really relentlessly awful. And
2: did some of that pressure feed into the men's relationships with each other? I mean, I can imagine being cooped up with the same men in this small metal box for months on end. Is so there friction there, or did the shared camaraderie overcome that?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like kind of sort of bomber crews and stuff. For the most part, the crews get on incredibly well. They're incredibly tight because you are living cheap by jowl. You know, your tank is your is is your home, and everyone, ha- you know, there has to be trust. In the same way that, that the skipper's got a, of a, of a Lancaster's, or a, a B-17 has got to kind of trust his tail gunner or his navigator or... or Wireless operator, whatever. It's the same with a tank. You know, the commander's got to trust his driver and his loader and his gunner and his coat lap gunner. And you know, there's there's a totally sort of symbiotic relationship where everyone is totally dependent on the other person. So you you can't afford to not get on. But there there are moments of of extreme tension, and there are moments where there's one crew member who you know people don't get on with, and they tend not to last you know, they tend to be moved on pretty quickly. Because, the, you know, the troop commander can see it or the squadron commander gets the end of it and they just go, right, you know, that can't have that. So, you know, Bert, who's been a pain in the ass driver and no one really likes, suddenly he's whisked off to Echelon or taken out of that environment. But there's a moment, you know, I remember there's a moment with John Cropper. He was uh, in, in B squadron. You know, they're... they're in this incredibly fraught and tense situation in the middle of this battle where they're climbing up this ridge through these woods and they just don't know what is going on. They don't know what is what's happened to the crews that have this sort of radio silence, and everyone starts just absolutely losing the plot. And they the, this terrible argument breaks out in the crew over the smallest, smallest thing, and it's just tension. But you know, they all make up and it's all absolutely fine, it's all completely forgotten kind of moments later. But there's also another moment sort of towards the end of the war where a much-loved squadron commander basically loses his nerve and gets gets repatriated back to back to England, and a new squadron commander comes in and, and he's a guy who has been wounded on D-Day and has seen a lot of desert action but doesn't know about Northwest Europe. So he's come in as major, a major and a, and a squadron commander, and he is commanding troop commanders, lieutenants. Who've been in the firing line for months and months and months and know what know literally every trick in the book. And that causes some tension. But it's clear that the junior troop commander who really falls out with this guy is because he himself is is getting a bit kind of combat fatigued. And that combat fatigue is, is manifesting itself with with increased caution and mistrust of his new squadron commander and that's flaring up so you do have these moments but for the most part they're kind of knocked on the head pretty pretty quickly
2: and how would you rate the tanks themselves that the sherwood rangers served in how do they compare for example to the ones the germans had
3: well yeah it's it's a it's a difficult one this because you know it depends on what you're comparing your tank you know if you were to line up a tiger tank with a sherman uh, on a football pitch and go right fire very probably the Tiger would win, you know, if it was a single shot, if it was like a sort of, you know, Georgian duel or something. But very interesting. I'll give you one example. So John Semkin, who I've mentioned already, you know, he was a squadron commander. He turned this corner of this village and at exactly the same time, coming in the opposite direction was a Tiger tank. So suddenly they they faced each other. There was absolutely no way that the Tiger tank should have come off second best to that. But John Sampkin, because he was incredibly experienced, always kept one up the spout. And what I mean by that is he always had a shell in the breach. And what he realised and what he had had absolutely conveyed to all his squadron and was absolutely disseminated throughout the, the Sherwood Rangers was that if you see the enemy first, just keep firing. So he fired, on that moment, he fired 10 rounds from his ordinary 75mm Sherman at that Tiger tank before the Tiger tank got off one. And the Tiger tank crew bailed out. And that was a massive, massive advantage, this rate of fire of the Sherman tank. So the Sherman tank had thinner armour than the Tiger tank, or the Panther, uh, or the Churchill, or frankly, even the Cromwell. But it had an incredible rate of fire. It also had a gun-stabilising gyro, which meant that it could fire much more accurately on the move. And this was something that no other tank in the Second World War had, uh, or certainly no German tank. And what they realised was that what you could do was pummel your enemy with with tank, with tank shells very, very quickly. And what that would do was then make the German crew go into the hull of their tank. So so for the most part, tank commanders had their heads and shoulders at least above out of the turret, because otherwise you can't see. You've got periscopes inside, but they're very, very um, disorientating and your field of vision is very, very narrow. So for the most part, they would have their their commanders out, and that's the only way you can really properly command a tank, and indeed other tanks, and work hand-in-hand with infantry. Otherwise, you just just simply don't have that visibility. And if you're blind, you know, you're ineffective. So the moment you start hitting your enemy tank, your Tiger or your Panther or whatever, they then lower the hatches and get inside the tank. They then can't see, so you just keep pummeling them. There's lots of smoke, there's a fog of war. Whatever. And then what you do is you bring forward a Sherman Firefly, which is a Sherman tank equipped with a high velocity 17 pounder gun, which can fire around at kind of, you know, 3,400 feet per second. And you knock it out because uh, those, gun- those guns are good enough. And that's how you do it. So the Sherman tank is also the other great virtue of the Sherman tank is it's incredibly easy to maintain in the field. And also, we've got the kit to do it. The Allies have got the kit to do it. They've got the low loaders and the hoists and the winches and the armoured recovery vehicles and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, the vast majority of tanks which get knocked out in battle are back in battle within a matter of a few days. You know, in, in the field, a Sherman engine can be replaced in two hours. I mean, that that is just phenomenal. So, again, it's part of that long tail, that huge chain that follows the frontline troops that, that enables... German regiments like the Sherwood Rangers just keep fighting at really, really good numbers. Whereas the Germans, a Panther and a Tiger is so complicated. It's such a complex piece of highly engineered kit that once it conks out, even in a small way, it tends to stay conked out. And because of their size, you know, Tiger tank is 56 tonnes, whereas a Sherman is 30. The gear you need, the equipment you need to then maintain them in the field is that much bigger as well and much more complicated. And, of course, the one thing that the Germans don't have is lots of oil. They don't have lots of fuel. So everything is a, is is just completely strained, whereas the number of Shermans that can be kind of sort of whisked out of the battlefield, put back into the battlefield, is just, just absolutely astonishing. I mean, there's very, very few times where the Sherwood Rangers are kind of under equipped with tanks, you know, Giel is one battle, Geilenkirch, and the end of Guillemkirk, and you know they're under equipped, and you know they're doing composite squadrons and all the rest of it. But within a matter of days after the conclusion of that fighting, they're back up to full strength again, uh, and that is just a huge advantage. So I think when one is looking at uh, sort of comparing Sherman tanks with Panthers or Tigers or whatever, you have to you have to think of them in the round. You have to think of the fact that there's forty nine thousand. Sherman tanks, where there's only one thousand three hundred forty-seven Tiger tanks, for example, you know. So there's a huge advantage in in numbers, and in ease of maintenance, and there are these certain things like speed of fire and all the rest of it, which work in the Sherman's fa- favour. The problem, of course, is when you get caught on the hoof, and when you get caught out in an ambush or something like that, and that's when the kind of you know the Sherman is gets a bit caught short because of its kind of small armour.
2: And then, how did the Sherwood tank crews view their german opponents was there any sense of a shared experience and a shared peril they're all facing
3: i don't think so really i i, I mean i maybe if they kind of stop to think about it but but you're in your little bubble you know you're in your bubble with your own mates and they're just the jerry you know they're the bosch they're the enemy they're the people that you've just got to go and i think there is this what you do get as the time moves on is a sort of different attitude in normandy to kind of you know what you're getting in in you know, I don't know. Say Operation Blackcock in January 1945, whereas it's just this mounting exasperation and anger that these Germans are beaten but are still fighting. I mean, what's the point? There is this just this absolute fury in in the middle of April 1945, where they're kind of they're slightly on the march again, and they're they're going along this long, long road that sort of goes through towns like sort of Kloppenburg. And I've retraced this road. And, you know, it's just like a single road, dead straight, goes through lots of forests, then there's a town, then there's another forest, then there's another town, there's another forest. And every time they go into this forest, they're kind of pounced on by people jumping out of the side of the woods with Panzerfaust. And another tank gets knocked out. And another people, you know, more more crew get, get injured and wounded and, you know, so on. And it's just... What are you doing? Why are you still doing this? You you know, you're completely destroyed. Your your armies are beaten. There's no way you're going to win the war. Just surrender. And of course, you know, a number of Germans do do that, but a lot don't. And I think that's so... Compared with tank crews, no, I don't think there is really. I don't think there is a sort of commonality and a a sense of shared experience. There was a kind of guy they got to know who was in the Africa Corps, who they knew, who'd fought against them in North Africa and who post-war you know became great mates and stuff but i think in the middle of the war and particularly in northwest europe i think it was just sort of contempt for the germans for the most part there is a moment where stanley Christopherson they've got a they've got a prisoner a german prisoner and he's wounded and he's only a young lad and a barrage comes down and and he he makes for his armored car and others are kind of taking shelter and the German can't move because he's wounded, and Stanley feels really awful, and he keeps thinking, "Should I get out of the armored car and go and save him?" And by the time he does go to do it, it's too late. The guy's been killed, and and he's haunted by that for a long time. So there is certainly a kind of you know a great degree of humanity within the Sherwood Rangers, and they, for the most part, they you know they treat their 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 prisoners very well, and and, and so on. But but I don't think there's a sense of kind of sort of shared experience particularly.
2: Now, I realised that even before writing this book, you, you knew the stories of quite a few of the the men who served in the Sherwood Rangers, but were there any people that you discovered in your research who left a real impression on you?
3: Yeah, there's a number. I was very lucky. I was I was given complete sent out of the blue by Michael Wharton, his father's wartime letters. And Bill Wharton has served in North Africa, He'd been a pre-war regular in the ranks, you know, trooper and all the rest of it, and then got a battlefield commission um, and ended up um, being a troop commander and variously being you know, deputy squadron leader and, and so on. And he, he turned 32 in 1944 and was married and had got married in August 1939. And he'd only seen his wife once for leave when they came back from North Africa uh, before training for D-Day began. And his wife was pregnant and actually did give birth to their first child at the end of 1944. And his letters are just incredibly moving and touching and funny and wonderful observations of his colleagues and comrades and, you know, incidents that have happened, but also sort of his incredibly wistful yearning to be with her again. You know, can you realise that, you know, it's, it's not since before the war that I saw you in shorts and that we were playing tennis together? You know, and it really struck me, this sort of incredible period of time and how hard that must be to keep that relationship going and keep the you know the 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 kind of sort of the heart still tender and all those sort of things and and yet and yet they did it and he you know fortunately he survived despite being very badly wounded he just seems such a lovely fellow i mean just a really decent man uh, and that really struck me i was also struck by the letters of harry heenan and and he was actually killed on the 25th september 1944 and he he joins the regiment at the end of june and he's 21 on the 25th of august so he dies a month after his 21st birthday but you're struck by how he's a kind of boy man you know he is a man but but he hasn't quite shed his youthful skin so there's lots of things in his letters where where you know that youthfulness just just shines through a bit i suppose you you just you can just really see what his character's like and I, and, and 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 that was incredibly moving and then I suppose the other person is is really is is Leslie Skinner, the padre, whose whose kind of sort of bravery and devotion to duty is just sort of second to none. And and you know you just you're just left in awe of these people, really.
2: After the war, what happened to the men that you wrote about? Were they affected a lot by their experiences, and did they remain close with each other?
3: Uh, yeah, there was there was a you know there was a very well there was a, the regimental association was was important. When I was researching this, I found up in the archives up at up at Carlton Barracks in Nottingham these these huge buff folders of all the correspondence of the Regimental Welfare Association. And there's just reams and reams and reams of these letters. And there were sort of funds and charity. It was basically a sort of charity, really. And it just sort of reminded you that, of course, this was all before kind of welfare state came in. So, you know, people did need help. And there's there's cases of, you know, it's, it's like financial help, it's advice, it's it's pastoral carers, all sorts of stuff that all these guys are sort of getting, you know, it's... it's Helping them get jobs and all sorts of stuff. You know, once they're demobbed, so so yes, and there's, there's regimental reunions and, and and so on and so forth. But yeah, they did. And you know, Padre Skinner seems to have done endless numbers of marriages, and and then later on in life, funerals as well. And they all seem to be a pretty tight bunch. I mean, of course, it affected people. I mean, George Ring, who was this sort of you know absolute legend within the with the Sherwood Rangers, you know. He, never talk about it at all until you know very near the end of his life you know he didn't didn't want to kind of sort of think about it really you know even stanley christopherson i remember david telling me that you know there were dark moments when you know he would he would sort of recede out of view for a few days and you know they knew not to kind of disturb him too much you know because they've all witnessed so many horrors and and so many awful things and of course it's traumatic how can it be otherwise and and there's all those sort of regrets and I remember talking to Stan Perry, who's who's still alive and the last surviving troop commander, and just the most wonderful man. I mean, he's he's just... He's funny and, and self-deprecating, but, but also incredibly perceptive. I, I asked him whether he kind of thought about it much. And he said, yeah, he did. And um, he did think about it quite a lot. And he said, you know, you carry three scars, really. And he said the first scar is the kind of physical scars, you know, the wounds because he was wounded twice. He said the second scar was kind of the doubts that you had: could I have done something different? Had I made a different call, would more people still have had a life? You know, would they be alive today, or would they have continued to live way after the war? And then the third scar is the you know is is the mental scars, that kind of sort of mental anguish that you have. And it was interesting. I spoke to his daughter Kat the other day, and um it was the 16th of august and that was a very traumatic day for him it was when he was wounded it was when sea had a, had a particularly bad time of things at crossing the noiro and a little village called berju i said oh you know dad's a bit gets a bit down at this time of you know on the 16th of august every year you know he really he sort of retreats into himself a little bit and that's you know what a burden to have to carry so yeah, I think it you know of course it affected them all, you know, but incredible sense of camaraderie and shared experience too. I mean, I think to a man everyone was pretty proud of being part of the Sherwood Rangers and what they achieved. There's a sort of really really strong spirit, I think.
2: Okay, James. Um I think I've been through the main things I was going to ask. Is there anything else really crucial we should have discussed that I didn't I didn't put to you at all?
3: No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I, I suppose the kind of a, the thing that really, if there's kind of one big takeaway more than anything else, it is just the enormous weight of responsibility on the on the troop commanders, but particularly the major commanders in the you know the regimental commanders, but also the squadron leaders. You, you know, if you're a squadron leader, you, you've got to have your head out of the tank. You're listening to your own crew on the intercom. You're also listening on the B-net, because that's your squadron net. But you've also got to listen to what's going on on the A-net, um, because that tells you what's going on the wider, wider battle. You've also got to be in touch with your infantry commander, the, the the battalion commander with whom you're supporting. You've also got to be looking all the time for danger. You've got to be making decisions. Those decisions can be a matter of life and death, whether you get that right or wrong. I, don't, I just don't know how they did it. Uh, and in summer you've got a day that probably starts at 3.30 and probably doesn't end till kind of half past 1 If you're lucky, three hours kip in the night, and the rest is just sort of snatched catnaps in, in between. But because you're a squadron leader, you don't really have much opportunity for catnapping. It's not like a driver, you know, suddenly you're sitting there doing nothing for an hour or whatever. You know, as a driver or a gunner or something, you can just sort of sit outside your tank and have a few, few not, you know, have 40 winks. But you can't really do that if you're a squadron leader because you've just got to be on it all the time. And that mental and physical strain that that put on people is just gargantuan. I mean, John Semkin, who I've mentioned a couple of times, you know, he was 23. He's 23, and he's a squadron commander who's also having to develop new tactics for the situation they find themselves in the summer of 1944. So many men that he's got to look after. He's got maybe a hundred men to kind of, you know, under his command that he's personally responsible for. He's got to make snap decisions. Quite often, those those squadrons are operating independently because how an independent armored brigade would work is that each regiment would be attached to a different infantry brigade, and each squadron would be attached to a separate battalion within that brigade. So, quite a lot of the time, you're a squadron is doing something quite different to B Squadron and C Squadron. So those squadron leaders, those squadron commanders have just got so much to think about, so much on their plate. And, and how they did it, I just, I just don't know. I, and, and that's it's that incredible weight of responsibility that and and how much they've got to think about that really, really struck me. And again, you know, I just look back on what I was like when I was 23, you know, what a kind of utterly useless, feckless individual I was. You know, I just I just I totally just don't know how they did it. You know, there's there's, there's troop commanders who are 19 and 20. You know, my son has just turned 20. The idea that my son would be commanding, you know, a troop of four Sherman tanks in the middle of a kind of vicious, brutal war just absolutely chills me to my core.
0: That was James Holland. Brothers in arms, one legendary tank regiment's bloody war from D-Day to VE Day It's out now, published by Bantam. James has also written a feature on the Sherwood Rangers for the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes pieces on Queen Elizabeth I, Medieval Jewels, The Fight for Abolition and The History of Windows. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.